Boker Tov, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. I'm Rabbi Griffin, the rabbi of Sarshlom Synagogue, the Rebbe of Lapid Judaism, founder of Lapid Judaism. And it is my pleasure and joy to be with uh, each and every one of you as we are diving into the second day, the second reading of the Aliyah, or excuse me, of the Torah portion, Kitisa. And I want to say Hag Sameach Purim. We have the holiday of Purim, which uh, officially begins this evening, uh, as we uh, are, are going to have the Megillah reading, which is going to be uh, an amazingly uh, fun time. We had a a, a Purim party uh, last evening with many of our uh, congregation, um, uh, 80 or so people, something like that, that were here for our banquet. It was a fantastic time, lots of joy. Glad to be with everybody. Today is the fast of Esther, the Tanit Esther. <clears throat> it is a, a one of the four fasts that were uh, given to us by uh, the prophets, and uh, so it is a it's a minor fast, meaning that it's a little bit less stringent than say Yom Kippur, uh, and certainly uh, a bit less stringent than. Uh, uh, the fast uh, where uh, Tishbaab, where we fast to remember the temple. Nevertheless, it is a fast day from uh, from dawn until dusk. Uh, for us in the Lapid world, we're going to end the fast this, this evening at 6 o'clock uh, Central Standard Time, in case you're uh, wanting to know that. We made that uh, declaration uh, at the conclusion of Shabbat last week. We fast during the uh, fast of Esther because this is what Esther did before she went in to see the king to try to um, do what she could to work uh, salvation. Um, uh, we, we fast and we remember that time. And we also uh, utilize this opportunity to uh, go before the king, to uh, fast and pray for our own salvation, if you will, our own teshuva, our own restoration. So we fast. Yes, we do not eat or drink anything. Uh, from uh, from this morning's first light until uh, this evening. Of course, there are exceptions. If you are pregnant or a nursing mother, uh, you should eat something. If you are diabetic, you should eat something. You should eat enough to uh, maintain your proper health levels. And if you're hypoglycemic, same thing. <clears throat> if you take medications that, of course, require you to drink water uh, to take them, you should take those medications and drink the water. Um, so... There are exceptions to these fasts. Obviously, if you're sick, then you should eat, um, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, if you're uh, healthy and, and don't require uh, those types of things uh, for whatever reason, then you should fast. There's also a special reading for today uh, from the Haftarah, uh, where we uh, we read about um, this the spirit of fasting, if you will, what God expects. This comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 through 56 uh, and verse 8. There are psalms, of course, that deal with uh, teshuva, and three of the uh, most common are Psalms 27, Psalm 51, of course, that's Psalm 51 is perhaps the most, most common, that's King David's, uh, well, one of King David's great psalms of, of teshuva, and then Psalm 40. What does teshuva involve? We'll be talking about teshuva today as we're reading the uh, Aliyah and looking at, uh, continuing to look at anyway, the insights that I left off with yesterday from the Kehul Tumash. There are four 
uh, there are four elements of teshuva. And so I thought it would be great to take this opportunity to remind everybody what those four elements are. The four elements of teshuva are, uh, first and foremost, regret. Regret as opposed to uh, guilt. Guilt is, I did something and I, I feel bad that I did it. But regret is different. Regret is that I did something that I, I, I sincerely and thoroughly and truly wish I had not done, and the, and the gravity of, of that has impacted me to the extent that uh, not only do I feel humiliated, do I feel um, guilty, but, but I actually um, feel sincere remorse and a desire never to do that again or to, to receive the victory over that. So first is re- regret. Second is, this, is, is to stop, to put yourself in a position where uh, you're no longer um, uh, thinking about uh, whatever that is, or you remove yourself entirely from uh, the temptation or the situation, whatever that happens to be, that you take steps, in other words, to change your behavior. That's really the point. Uh, whatever the sin is, overeating, drinking, drugs, listening to the wrong type of music, watching the wrong, the wrong type of stuff, uh, the whole gamut. You remove yourself, you put yourself in a different situation uh, that uh, reduces um, that temptation. Then, then the, the third step is verbalization. It's a very important step where you verbalize to Hashem whatever uh, it is. I've often told people, this is I've been saying this for years, and uh, it's something that I practice, uh, and it's, um, uh, I think, uh, particularly helpful. There are, of course, prayers that we verbalize from the Siddur, such as the um, uh, the afternoon prayers of Minka, we 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 uh, we pray prayers and prayers. The Vidui prayer uh, that we say sometimes um, uh, throughout the year, but most particularly on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where we verbalize uh, prayers and so on. Um, the Avinu Mokeno is another example of where we verbalize prayers. But the idea in Judaism is that it's not enough just to think about it in your mind that um, I've committed a transgression, and so therefore I'm I'm, I'm contemplating it. But it's critical that we actually verbalize it, that we actually speak it out loud. It doesn't have to be shouted. It doesn't have to be said above a voice that only you can hear. But it does need to be said. And it doesn't need to be said to anybody else other than to Hashem and the merit of Messiah Yeshua. You don't need to say, you don't need to confess anything to the rabbi or certainly not to a priest or any of those types of things. You just have to be able to confess it to Hashem uh, and verbalize it. So one of the things that I've always told people to do or encourage them to do, is at times like this, to take out a sheet of paper and to um, set aside some time where you can write uh, on that sheet of paper every sin, every transgression, every every fault, every failure that Hashem will bring to mind. And write it write it on a sheet of paper, line by line, and, and be specific. And then once you've completed that task, go through each of those things that you wrote and confess them. You just wrote them. You were thinking about them. You wrote them down. But now confess them aloud before Hashem and say that I, I confess that I'm guilty of this. I've confessed that I've committed this, whatever you've written down. And then pray that Hashem, through the power of His Spirit and through the merit of the Messiah Yeshua, that he should break the power of those sins, those transgressions, faults, and failures uh, in your life, and that you should never return to him, that he should give you the power 
to um, overcome them. And then take the list and destroy it. Um, if, if it's safe to burn it in a safe environment, then, then do that. But most likely, uh, the best thing to do is just to, to rip it up into shreds like, like a sh- or, put, or put it through a shredder. Uh, somehow destroy it and um, cast it t- into the garbage or what have you and let that be as if your sins, your transgressions, your faults and failures have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. And then the fourth and final step to all of this is resolve. Resolve. A resolve never to um, uh, to return to that. So, with all of that said, that's just wanted to share some insights of Teshuva since today is a fast day and we have that on our minds. Let's turn in our uh, Chumash to the page 489. The uh, We left off yesterday not finishing the entire reading of the first Aliyah because uh, it was a particularly long Aliyah. And uh, the second Aliyah here is also kind of long. But we want to, I wanted to share some insights, so we kind of left off. We may end up doing the same thing, but never never fear, we will get through each and every one of the readings. We're not going to leave anything throughout the week, uh, Bezrat Hashem. So chapter 31 is where we're going to begin uh, reading today. Someone asked about thoughts. Yes, thoughts are also things that we need to make teshuva for. Now, obviously, actions are... Um, um, a higher level of sin, if you will. If you, when, when we act upon our thoughts, that's a higher level. But thoughts themselves need to be taken captive. This is this is what you know. I think I think it was the Apostle Paul who wrote you know uh, about taking thoughts captive, every and so on. Uh, everything, every thought that exalts itself, and so on. Um, again, there's nothing new in the New Testament. These are all Jewish concepts. We have to take control of those thoughts and not to dwell upon them. Um, anyway, so yes, we definitely need to do that. Chapter 31, verse 1. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, See, I have called you by name, Bezalel, son of Ori, son of Or of the tribe of Yehuda. I have filled him with a godly spirit, with wisdom, insight, knowledge, and with every craft, to weave designs, to work with gold, silver, and copper, stone cutting for setting, and wood carving, to perform every craft, and and I behold, I have assigned him, or excuse me, with him, Oheliab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have endowed the heart of every wise-hearted person with wisdom, and they shall make all that I have commanded you, and the, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testamental tablets, the cover that's upon it, and all the utensils of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure menorah and all its utensils, and the incense altar, the elevation offering altar and all its utensils, the laver in its base, the knit vestments, the sacred vestments of Aaron and the Kohen, the vestments of his son to minister, the vestments, excuse me, the uh, anointment oil and the incense spices of the sanctuary. Like everything that I have commanded you, shall you make. Adonai said to Moses, saying, Now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, However, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you. It is a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I am Adonai who makes you holy. You shall observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Its desecrators shall be put to death, for whoever does work on it, shall, that soul shall be cut off 
from among his people. Now, again, just a side note, remember that I've, I've spoken about this in the past, but sometimes people read this and they say, oh, that was so harsh and so hard in the that, that so-called Old Testament. I'm glad that we're no longer under that. Well, you have to understand that in order for someone to be put to death for uh, violating the Sabbath, they would have to be brought before, at minimum, the Sanhedrin Catan, which consisted of 21 judges. Uh, if if they were a, a, a leader in the community, a person of greater stature, like a sage or something, or a rabbi, something like that, they would have to be brought before the, San, the great Sanhedrin of 71 elders, which is why Yeshua was brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, that's why, because he was considered a great sage, a prophet, a great leader. That, that's why they brought him before the 71. You also had to be over the age of 20. Okay, You had to be at least 20 years old. Uh, and once you were brought before the court, you had to uh, testify that you committed this transgression with eyes wide open, fully aware that... Uh, that the penalty was uh, was death. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say, of course, there had to be witnesses, and those witnesses had to be formally sworn in. In other words, what I'm trying to say is there was a due process. It wasn't a situation that if <clears throat> you were caught violating the Shabbat, uh, that you were just semi, you know, summarily uh, taken out and caused to walk the plank. Now, where do we get this precedent for due process? Well, uh, it comes in part from the fact that uh, remember that there was a man who was caught gathering wood on the Shabbat, and they, they eventually brought in the Moses, and Moses didn't even pass judgment uh, upon him. He brought him before Hashem. So you see the, the it, there was no uh, desire within the community to, uh, to bring death to somebody. I just want to point this out because the Torah gets slandered a lot by people who say uh, it's too harsh and so on. But this is also a testimony of why we need the oral Torah, because according to the written code, if you're somebody who says, you know what, I just want the, the written Torah only, I don't want any of that oral Torah, rabbinical, Talmud stuff, they don't know what they're talking about anyway, I YouTube this yesterday and I'm an expert, and so I, we don't need any of that kind of stuff, well, here's the problem. If you're a Word of God only, a solo scriptura person, then you're going to read this because it says if somebody violates the Shabbat, you're supposed to take them out and stone them to death. So uh, why aren't you doing that? Now, seriously, uh, you should uh, you should be going about, if you're a Word of God only, you should be going about uh, taking care of business. I mean, people violate the Shabbat every week, so how come you're not doing it? I guess you're not a Word of God only person, actually. Uh, but then, of course, you would be extremely legalistic. You'd be a very harsh person. You'd also be in jail. But if you actually follow the oral Torah, which is what Messiah and the apostles did, then you would find that you are a, 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 a kind, caring, gracious person who believes in due process. Verse 15, for six work days may be done, and the seventh day is a day of complete rest. It is sacred to Adonai. Whoever does work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall observe the Shabbat to make the Shabbat an eternal covenant. We, we read this during the uh, Amidah prayer on Shabbat. 
um, for their generations. Between me and the children of Israel is a sign forever that in six-day period Adonai made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When he finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, he gave God the two tablets of stone, the stone inscribed by the finger of God. Chapter 32. The people saw that Moses had delayed in descending. Now we're now, by the way, we are now into the uh, second Aliyah officially. The people saw that Moses had delayed in descending from the mountain. And the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man, Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know that what became of him. Now the Midrash teaches us that um, uh, Hasatan, cursed be he, caused a vision of a coffin to appear in the sky and the people looked up at it and they said, this is a sign that Moses is dead. And so this is one of the things that led them to, uh, to do this. So it says, Aaron said to them, remove the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. The entire people removed the gold rings that were in the ears, brought them to Aaron. He took it from their hand and brought it up, as a, uh, up in a cloth and fashioned it into a molten calf. They said, this is your God, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw and built an altar before him. And Aaron called out and said, a festival for Adonai tomorrow, a festival for Shem. Now, what's remarkable about this is it actually says in the Torah that, Mo, that Aaron said, Vayar Aaron Vayaven Mizbeach Lefanav. In other words, this is a festival to the Yudke Vavke. This is a festival to Hashem. So it wasn't, this is the, where people um, uh, people often say, well, I, I'm doing this pagan thing or I'm celebrating this pagan festival or I'm applying this pagan practice to my, my worship of God, my worship of the Messiah, but I no longer apply the paganism, in other words, let's the rabbits and, and eggs for Easter, I, those come from pagan cults. But you know what? It doesn't matter because the rabbit and the egg now, it's now the resurrection egg and it's the, uh, I don't know what the rabbit, they call the rabbit, it's the, it's, I don't know what that's called. Uh, but anyway, it's the rabbit. It's the rabbit and the, and, the, and the resurrection egg, it's no longer the pagan whatever it was before. Um, same thing with Xmas. We're gonna make, uh, we're gonna uh, pretend that Santa Claus is not the god Odin of uh, the Nordics, um, but we're gonna now say that he was just some uh, righteous saint who liked to give gifts to children. Um, we're we're gonna say that the Christmas tree was not the uh, Asherah pole as it was, uh, but we're actually gonna say now that it's something else. It's not from Jeremiah ten. We're gonna. Um, even in messianic uh, circles, they state whitewash that uh, we're not. It's no longer uh, applicable. Now it's these are all things that uh, belong to Hashem. That's exactly what we did with the golden calf. We took a golden calf. We said, you know, this is a golden calf. Uh, we used to worship this in Egypt as a a, a another deity. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we're just going to say this is a calf, but the calf is Hashem. Problem solved. We've now. Uh, uh, Christianized, if you will, we've now made holy, sanctified a pagan act. That's exactly what happened in the incident of the golden calf. And people today say, I would never do the golden calf thing. I have no idea. I don't understand. And yet they do that while they're celebrating Xmas and Easter.
doing exactly what was done in the wilderness. Taking a pagan object and applying God's name to it. That is, according to the Bible, for those who are sola scriptura, strictly forbidden. So it says, those arose, they rather, arose early the next day and offered up elevation offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat to eat and drink and they got up to revel. And Adonai spoke to Moses and said, descend for your people that you brought up from the land of Egypt have become corrupt. They have strayed quickly from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and prostrated themselves to it and sacrificed to it. And they said, this is, our, this is your God, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Mitzrayim. Adonai said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, and now desist from me. Let my anger flare up against me, or against them, rather, and I shall annihilate them, and I shall make you into a great nation. We're going to pause there and come back to the reading uh, tomorrow, because again, I want to get to some, uh, to some insights that I wanted to share with you. I want to go back to the introduction of the Kehot where I left off yesterday, because again, we're on a fast day, and so our minds need to be situated towards Teshuva. What was the issue, by the way, um, at the book of Esther? One of the issues um, was that the people of Israel had fallen prey to the temptation of the kingdom, and Ahasuerus, in other words, when he was holding his feast at the beginning of the Megillah reading, he was doing so because he had miscalculated the prophecy of 70 years. And as a result, he said, you know what? I'm, a, I'm victorious. God's prophecy has not come to pass, and I am now victorious. And as a result, I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to uh, show off my victory over God. And so what he did is he had a year-long festival and he used as his serving dishes, Hasveh Shalom, he used the uh, bowls and spoons and so on, uh, pitchers from the temple. And he himself came to the banquet every day dressed in the garments of the high priest. And the problem was, is that the, some of the, many of the Jews of the city of Shushan joined him, kind of like a capitulation. But nevertheless, they joined him, and as a result, this is, this is what caused uh, the edict of Haman really to be allowed to go forth against us. Now, what's unique about Purim, also from a Jewish point of view, is that Purim is considered like the second giving of the Torah, meaning that in the first giving of the Torah, we accepted it um, somewhat under duress, but on this, what makes Purim so special is that at Purim time, we came face to face with our sin and our near annihilation. We, we came to the point at Purim where everything that we hope in and everything that we believe in and everything that we hold so dear was almost taken from us to include our own life and the lives of our family because of our sin. And thank God at Purim time, we took a, we stopped and took a look around and said, wait a minute, what are we doing? And we accepted God's Torah anew. That's what makes Purim so special. And this is why euphemistically the sages wrote and said that in the Messianic era, the only uh, festival that will exist will be Purim. 
Now, that's not to be taken literally because we know from reading the prophets that there's we're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We also know uh, from the book of Isaiah that we'll be uh, celebrating uh, Shabbat and Rosh Hodesh and so on. The point is, why does it say that we'll only be celebrating Purim? And the answer is, is because Purim represents receiving the Torah a second time, this time not under duress, but out of pure love motivated by our desire to draw near to Hashem, that festival will be the only one celebrated in the millennial times, the millennial reign, in the Olam Haba. Why? Because it will be a time in which we have drawn near to God from a pure heart of sincerity, not because we were, uh, you know, commanded to or, or somehow in some way of distress uh, made to. So going back to the Kehold Humash, Talking about true teshuva. We left off yesterday talking about the person <clears throat> who thought he had a really great, or she thought she had a really great relationship with God, only to come to find out that whatever particular sin that they've committed uh, proved that that sin meant more to them than their relationship with Hashem. It's a devastating revelation. Uh it's real easy for anybody to have that experience and and then uh, crumble into a um, spiral of depression. But we we have hope. There's so much grace in Hashem that it says here, the person must therefore delve into himself in order to find a place in his soul where God means more to him or to her than the pleasure of fulfillment that this indulgence seemed to offer them. This exercise in deepening his consciousness and awareness of God and reestablishing his relationship with him at this new deeper level is called teshuva. That's what teshuva is. And and this, this is the essence of repentance. The essence of repentance is introspection, delving, delving into our, our lives and saying, God, I need to find that place where you mean more to me than the, the, temp, the, the temporary pleasure of sin, whatever that is. So it says, if the teshuva is real, <clears throat> the individual will have reached a place within himself where his relationship and commitment to God are now so strong that they will no longer be able to commit the sin he is repenting for. Obviously, the more serious the sin, the greater teshuva that's required, and the deeper the resulting bond between the individual and God. So, as we can see, there's this paradox where, as we just read, the deeper the sin, the the worse we feel and 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 and. and, we feel more lost than ever. And yet, the deeper the sin, the more tragic the sin, the more harsh the sin, the greater the bond <coughs> that we're able to have with Hashem vis-a-vis Teshuvah. This, my friends, is the great love and great grace of God. As people have said before, you can't have a testimony if you've never had a test. And so all of us would like to say 
that, you know, we're such great Zotics that we've never sinned and we're so awesome and we never have a problem and we never have temptation and we never have bad thoughts and, oh my, we're walking on water all the time, so much so we can't even take a bath. It's just crazy. But the reality is, is that's not the most righteous people. If you look at the Bible and find our most righteous heroes, the ones that we love with the most fervor, the ones who wrote the Psalms and wrote the Proverbs and wrote the the books of the Bible, what we find is people who dealt with very serious sin in their life were able to overcome it through teshuva. And then as a result of that, we enjoy their works. People like Aaron, we just read about. People like Moses, people like like, um, uh, David and King Solomon, people like Peter. So many people. So it says, obviously this process works only if the sin is accidental. Now listen to this, because this is another element of the grace of God. And it's also an indication of the grace of the rabbis. You know, those rabbinic Jews, those Pharisees that everybody talks so ugly about all the time, slanders them and libels them. It says... This only matters, only is effective if the sin is accidental. Now, what you're thinking to yourself right now is, wait a minute. My sin wasn't necessarily accidental. I, I, I knew what I was doing. I, was, I, was, I knew it was wrong, and yet I, I, I was compelled to do it anyway. Well, this is the definition rabbinically of accidental. Accidental is temporary insanity. In other words, the sages point out that a person only sins if they have if they are temporarily insane in other words we all know the consequences of sin we all know how bad sin is therefore the only reason that or way in which you could do it is if you have just you're just insane for the moment that my friends is rabbinical pharisaical grace this is why they brought you before the court and said did you know that if you gathered on the Shabbat that you could suffer the death penalty. Now they know you know that. <laughs> they know you know that. But what they're assuming is you lost your ever-loving mind for just a moment. Isn't that what we tell our children? We tell our children sometimes when they do bad things, we look at them and say, have you lost your ever-loving mind? And of course, they see the, the look on your face and they say, yes, sir. <laughs> and then you say to them, I thought so. Now you get, you know, stop doing with that and blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what Hashem does with us. So it says, one cannot intentionally set out the sin in order to achieve a deeper and higher relationship. So in other words, if you say, well, you know what? I really want a deeper and higher relationship with God. And so the best way for me to do that is to create a really heinous sin and then I'll repent for it and then I'll draw closer. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's what that's the point that's being expressed here. One cannot intentionally set out the sin and then think that they'll be able to draw closer. However, if God orchestrates it, not that he's causing us to sin, but rather that he allows it to transpire and he removes his aid for a moment, that's a different situation. Now, one more thing. We're we're out of time. And I have a lot more to share, but I, I, I want to uh, say one thing here. It says, uh, I, I wanted to say uh, that during the fast festival of Purim, this is a time where we give symbolically 
the half shekel. Now, what is traditionally done is that you gather three, three or five, uh, three or five uh, half dollar coins, and you give them during Minka time today, or uh, just before the fest. The uh, excuse me, the uh, Megillah reading. Um, you can also give it tomorrow, uh, and so on. You, you give it to. You can. I, we encourage people to bring it to the shul, and, and so on. Anyway, the point is, you give it away. Um, however, last year I had a hard time finding half half dollar coins. I, I guess the banks stopped carrying them. Uh, so I had to get just the dollar coins. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's symbolic. And you give that. The reason is, is because this is the time when the half shekel was collected. And it's a, 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 a symbolic act of atonement uh, for our sins. And so this is brought down from the Talmud. But why is that the case? By the way, I also want to mention that that uh, I'm sorry for going over a little bit this morning, uh, but um, Purim is also the time for gift giving, particularly to the poor, giving sadaka, giving charity, giving gifts. Uh, interestingly, the, the pagans have the holiday of Halloween in which they dress up in demonic costumes and they take from people. Um, in Judaism, we have a, a custom of dressing up in costume during Purim and giving to people. This is because God's kingdom is the opposite of the kingdom of darkness. So this is the season. This is the holiday in Judaism in which we give gifts. That's why we call them mishloach manot, gifts that we have sent out. Um, but I also want to say here that uh, we don't have a temple. We, we don't have the sacrificial service um, because of that. So how are these are the three ways uh, that that teshuva is is brought about? One is uh, the first is repentance. That that's why I talked about that earlier to, uh, in this aliyah. The second is through prayer, and the third is through charity. So repentance, prayer, and charity bring about true teshuva. May God help us to make true teshuva and to draw closer to Him and to be better people. Hag Samek Purim, thank you so much for joining me on the Aliyah today. We'll look forward to being with everybody again uh, tomorrow morning, Bezrat Hashem. Um, hopefully everybody will be able to join us tonight. Listen, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you do not want to miss this, Megillah reading. If you're not in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, then we, you can uh, join us online. We're going to be live streaming uh, this Megillah reading event tonight. It's going to be lots of fun. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, and so hopefully that'll be the case. So blessings to all of you. Shalom. We'll see everybody uh, this evening. Hag Samek. And may you have an easy fast and more importantly, a meaningful fast. Shalom, shalom.